I'm glad you all can be with us today. About two and a half, maybe three months ago, Wei and I were having one of our pastors' meetings, and we were uh, just talking about upcoming things we'd like to do during homily time and began thinking about the fact that almost all of us, whether we talk about it or not, either within our own lives or in the lives of someone very close to us, know someone who is struggling with addiction or with some other kind of compulsive behavior, and how that's something that is virtually universal uh, in our experience, and yet we know uh, oftentimes in religious spaces where we might feel a temptation to posture uh, in certain ways, we don't always uh, have those conversations. We're not always able to acknowledge that. And so we wanted to have some space where we could do that. And so today's homily time uh, is going to be that. I'm excited to have Lily and Joe, uh, who will be joining us uh, there. Yeah, I'll take some woos. That's great. Uh, They're uh, being courageous and bold by sharing uh, with us. They are people who are a part of our Vox community. Uh, They're on their own journeys of recovery, as they'll share about a little bit later, and they've also had experience facilitating for other people uh, who are on the journey of recovery, and so wanted to share with that. The lectionary text that we uh, sort of all three of us chose together for today is from Psalm 116, and we've already read through the first six verses, but I love how verse one starts off acknowledging um, that part of how the psalmist in this, what seems like a pretty dark space, is able to connect with the fact that the divine, this holy other, has not left the psalmist is because the psalmist, even in the midst of whatever hardship and pain and challenge uh, he or she was going through, is able to sense that God listens, that God hears, that the pain and suffering isn't unacknowledged, but instead is received by holy mystery in a beautiful way. And We are using Eugene Peterson's translation today, which is a bit of a departure from our typical translation that we use, but I loved in verse three, uh, it just seemed to resonate so well. Death stared me in the face and was hard on my heels. Up against it, I didn't know which way to turn. Uh, And many of us in different places of our life find that for ourselves or for people we care deeply about, we are in that same kind of place where we feel up against it where it feels like we're not sure where we should turn or what we should do next. Here at Vox, we have lots of values that I love, and two of the ones I thought about for today and and for our conversation uh, are both the values of posture and of empathy. I have summarized posture as being when we are humbly accepting the messiness and majesty of our own humanity and others, and want to invite us as we, in the moment, receive uh, some stories from Lily and Joe to have a posture of humility uh, towards them and towards ourselves and whatever else might be coming up as they're sharing. And then also to have a sense of empathy, creating space to listen, to feel, and to be with people who are different. And we're also, I think it's a beautiful uh, serendipitous convergence that I act is here today and giving us a chance also Uh, to be a part of that experience with them as well. So when we were talking about this, uh, 
There are lots of different ways that people approach recovery. One of the most common is through 12 steps, and that's what has resonated with Lily and Joe. Uh, it's just one among many ways, but it'll be what we're mostly talking about today. And we didn't want to take for granted that everybody in this room knew what those 12 steps were. So we're going to begin our time by just hearing those 12 steps read uh, by Joe and Lily. Thanks, Christopher. Okay, step one. We admitted we were powerless over our addictions and compulsive behaviors, that our lives had become unmanageable. Step two, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Step three, we made a decision to turn our lives and our wills over to the care of God as we understood God. And step four, we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Step five, we admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Step six, we were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Step seven, we humbly asked God to remove all of our shortcomings. Eight, we made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. We made, step nine, we made direct amends to such people whenever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Step 10, we continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Step 11, we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God, praying only for the knowledge of God's will for us and the power to carry that out. And 12, Having had a spiritual experience as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to others and practice these principles in all our affairs. Well, Lily and Joe, thank you so much for being with us and for taking this bold step to share with thank our you. community. We're really grateful. Appreciate it. Um, when you think about recovery or the recovery community, what is something about that that makes you come alive? I'll go first. So my name's Lily. Um, I... I'm a person in recovery. It's kind of how I identify. Um, and I've been that way for a bit over 11 years. Uh, and this is the question that I have had to think about and rewrite and like shorten my answer because I could really go on for like, Ever. yeah, um, a long time. Um, for me, the recovery community, like what makes me come alive, what made me come alive in so many senses is it was a place for me where belonging happened before like all of the behavior change. And that's just not something that, that I've got to experience in other places. Um, the fellowship that I attend is, it's as much a community and a culture where I can bring my full self as it is a place where I get to participate in both being helped and helping others. It's a place where, you know, it's been really great to move to Austin this past year to see that even though I'm in a different place, like I can go to any city on earth and find and find my community and people who understand my struggle and maybe the unique struggles of what it means to do some of the other things in life that that are impacted by even long-term recovery. Thank you. I'm Joe, and usually when you go to recovery meetings, you'll start off with, hi, I'm Joe, I'm an alcoholic. Um, I've been sober for nine years, and what gets me excited about the recovery community, I think, more than anything else, was I was accepted for who I was. I wasn't judged. And so the very first time I went to a recovery meeting, after years and years of trying to stop drinking, um, I felt at home. You know, I felt like I was understood. So I, um, 
you know, that's, I think, what gets me mostly excited about being in recovery, that I have people that understand where I've been, they understand where I'm going. And then as I've grown in my recovery, I also have the opportunity to connect with other people that are on their journey and help them and be part of their recovery story too. So that's, I think, what gets me most excited about um, being in active recovery. So. I wonder, kind of following that up, what are some misconceptions, and you know what makes you come alive about recovery in the recovery community, but what are some misconceptions you encounter out there about recovery? Um, you know, I, for me, you know, when I thought about recovery, I thought about, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Or, you know, so anybody that was actively in um, living in alcoholism or drug addiction, it was for those people. You know, it wasn't for me. Yet, you know, time and time and time again, I tried on my own to stop drinking and to deal with those problems. But it wasn't until I really connected with the recovery community that I began to understand that recovery is for everybody. And I don't know if the quote is up there of uh, Thomas Keating, but, you know, one of my favorite quotes uh, in recovery is that everyone is either in some form of recovery or they're heading towards some, you know, form of addiction. And at first, you know, when I heard that, I, you know, it seemed like a little judgy, but I, I think, uh, <laughs> but the more I began to accept it, the freer I felt and the freer I was to be able to examine the root of what was really going on in my life. For me, um, I think it's really important to know that, you know, we're all less free than we'd like to imagine that we are in terms of the choices that we make. Um, and addiction's a really nice shortcut to acknowledging that that lack of freedom, um, I use the 12 steps today uh, when I encounter areas in my life and thought process and behaviors that aren't free. But I also do want to be clear, like it isn't as painful or deep as or consequence heavy as the same as the substance use disorder that I had. Um, I also agree. I think the 12 steps can be useful to anyone. I think lots of different pathways to recovery can be useful to anyone. Um, and I also have this hesitation for fear when people say that like they found freedom as if like my perfectionism is the same as my severe substance use disorder because um, it's not. Um, and I don't want to like reintroduce some sort of like spiritualized moral superiority or make it easier to judge people with a substance use disorder. I don't know if we have the next slide. The slide that has the different images. Yeah, uh, yeah I think there's, that um, should be there. The recovery dialects. Yes. I love using this slide um, when I do academic presentations about addiction because that's actually part of my job. The only one I really like to talk about is the one that says abuse and don't say it. Um, most people who have a substance use disorder or an alcohol use disorder or compulsive behavior have a history of abuse. And I know even for me, calling myself a substance abuser uh, was a really quick way to just add the shame that already happens in addiction, learning to change my language, learning how to be kind in the narrative I told myself. Um, and that's not saying I'm not accountable, but just learning to be kind uh, in how I describe myself and how I describe others helped me practice and give that grace uh, to myself, which really was part of that freedom. So, yeah. Well, kind of in line with what you've both just been sharing, how have you experienced your spirituality align with your recovery process? Um, so I have just always loved church. I was like the kid in my family. It was like, I'm going to church. Um, but when I was in college, I had this 
uh, first time I went to treatment was in high school. Um, and I struggled on and off. Uh, my addiction started actually with a overprescribed benzo uh, anti-anxiety medication and went from there. Um, but I had this experience with a college pastor who told me that my continued struggle might be evidence that I was not saved, that I was not part of the elect, and that I had been built to show other people that they were loved by God and I was not. Um, and so by the time I came to the 12 steps, uh, I got really caught up on that step two that came to believe that a power greater than myself would restore me to sanity because I had been directly told by somebody I trusted and looked up to that that was not the case. Um, and my sponsor, who uh, has been sober like longer than I've been alive, which is incredible, um, told me that that was fine. I didn't need to pray to like my church God. I still went to church because um, I self-harm in its own special way there. But um, told me to pray to whatever kept her sober. And uh, there was a good period of time where, for me, I had two gods. I had this church god who I loved, but I was pretty sure didn't love me. And I had my, like— this God that kept my sponsor sober and kept me sober too, who was faithful to me. And it took a long time for me to integrate them back into God and to like have a healthy relationship. Um, and I say that, you know, church probably couldn't have given me the space to have two gods for lots of obvious reasons. Um, but but my 12 step, my 12 step fellowship did have that space. And so for me, like really being able to have a healthy spirituality is is because of the 12 step process so thank you that was a good share <laughs> um you know when christopher first asked this question at first i thought well maybe we can kind of just fold this into other parts but but then as i thought about it the question really grew on me because there is no separation for me um, from my spiritual life and my recovery life. They're one and the same. So as I've, as I've grown in my recovery, you know, the more I grow in my recovery, the, the deeper my need for grace. And it's just, um, I, I can't separate the two at all. And I, I've found that, um, you know, as I move forward and, and, and dig deeper with God, the deeper the healing is. And it's just, it's, it's all one and the same. And also, I think my recovery, when you think about spirituality, is how, how Christ-like I relate to the world. You know, it, the, the more I work on recovery, the less judgy I am. You know, it's, it's so much easier for me to accept people in their, in, in their imperfections because at the root of it, I'm kind of a train wreck myself, you know? So it's just, it, it, a train wreck in grace. You know, I say, I say that I'm always gonna be growing. I was like, I was like to think that, um, I was telling Jeff wherever he is earlier, you know, my, I, I always want to, I always want to kind of think about my last breath being, okay, God, what are we working on next? You know, in recovery. Um, but it, it's, it's really helped me. It's helped me with my family relationships. It's helped me with my, just, just everybody that I interact with in the world. So yeah, there, there, for me, there's absolutely no, no separation between the two. So it's a beautiful picture thinking of your last breath, just being like, what's next, God? What are we doing? That's yeah, really, thank you. Um, we know part of even what animated us to be here today is knowing that probably each and every one of us has someone in our world, in our sphere of influence that we care about, um, that we would say is struggling 
uh, with addiction or with some kind of compulsive behavior. And that there's probably many of us here today that would say that that's then, and that it's us and others that would say it's, you know, someone who I love and is very near and dear to me. What would you say to someone struggling with the impact of addiction in a loved one's life? I mean, it's hard. It is so hard. And if you, you know, whether it's your partner or a child, especially. Sorry. Anyway, it's just, I, I have someone in my life that I love very much. And I've tried everything to fix this person. And I can't. You know, it's like when you're a parent, especially, I think you live, you carry shame you know, when your child is struggling with addiction and you are willing to pay anything, you know, rehab, mental health hospitals, anything. And then at the end of the day, you just, you have to accept that their journey in life and their journey in recovery belongs to them. You can't, you didn't cause it. The three C's we always talk about in, in, um, in recovery is you didn't cause it, you can't cure it, and you definitely can't control it. And it and it will it will rob you. It's like a black hole. It'll rob you of your own peace. And so, if you are a person that you have somebody in your life that you love is is in active addiction, you know there's there's help there's help for that. Whether it's through therapy, there's a you know if you've never heard of Al-Anon, um, it's a great support group for families that have loved ones that are in addiction. So, I encourage you to to explore those options. I, I'm, I'd echo just a lot of that. Uh, I would say for stuff, one, yeah, it's not your fault, and two, that you're not alone, whatever your relationship is to the, to the person who might be actively struggling. Um, I've, you know, I lost my marriage to my former spouse because they have an active alcohol use disorder, and it still impacts my daily life because we're co-parents. Um, and they aren't, they aren't a bad person. They're, they're sick person the same way that I was. They love our daughter. Uh, but none of that, and even the fact that I professionally like work in the field, like none of that's enough for them to find recovery. Um, and I had a lot of shame about that. Um, like here's, I am a person in recovery. I you know, was sober before we even got married. And yet none of that had that impact. Um, I wish that I had sought support for myself earlier in that process when things were, were heading poorly. Um, and that's something I want to tell people. Like, I know a lot of us want to be like, well, we don't want to shame them. We don't want to publicly, like, I'm not, they're not a bad person. This isn't about shame. This is about me making sure and my story and my needs that like I can get those met because I am a human with those two and, and I have to, you know, protect myself. Um, and yeah, a lot, there's so many skills. I am a huge fan of the craft skills, which are taught through the smart family and friends meetings. And Al-Anon has, Al-Anon and AA, not the same thing, despite very similar names. Um, but Al-Anon has been particularly helpful. And I repeat those three C's like multiple times a day sometimes. So, Thank you both for just tenderly sharing that such, like when we can see it on your faces and your hearts, it's just uh, very warm and meaningful for us that you would be willing to open up to us uh, around that. Um, I know we chose this text together, Psalm 116, because uh, the psalmist that's uh, there is, in a challenging place, but we also thought we saw a lot of hope there. Could you talk a little bit about uh, looking at this lectionary test, what resonates with you and your experience in recovery? Yes. I, I love the verse, 
you have listened to me. I will call on you all the days of my life. You know, when I was when I was living in, and, and it was sort of a, a, my alcoholism was something that really creeped up on me over the years. You know, it was trying to manage a busy, I owned a business with 60 employees and was working too much, had a family, and it, 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 it was all these things that were weighing on me. So drinking became a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more until it, it became a real problem. And through all that time, you know, being a Christian for, you know, since I was 17 years old, I didn't understand why God wouldn't just take it away, you know? And I think that verse resonates with me mostly because I've come to realize that God suffered with me. God never didn't hear me. And he was always there through the whole time. It wasn't until the wall of shame that was there because of the addiction was gone that, you know, I finally was able to recognize that God was always there. So I just love that verse. I also, when I saw the multiple lectionary texts, was immediately drawn to this. One of my uh, favorite Old Testament scholars is a guy named Walter Brueggemann, and he writes a lot about the Psalms. Um, and and Psalms like this, they're called Psalms of New Orientation. Um, and so when I read read this the first time, one of the things that I saw was, you know, here I am near death. And for me, that's like that pit of disorientation. Um, recovery for me has been a lot like recovery and repentance both mean this like turning around. Um, and that's something that, you know, for me, it's part of my identity. Like I am a person who has turned around and will turn around and wants to turn around when that's what's like I'm called to do. And it's, it's Psalms like this that let me know, like, this has been a prayer of our, you know, as people of the book, as Christians, as, you know, people who follow God, that we all need this prayer of finding a new orientation, um, knowing that God is always listening to us. That was something, again, learning that the God who was faithful to me in early sobriety is the same God uh, in church and in, you know, scripture and who who am I love. Um, that's something that took me time, but that's something that I saw saw in the psalm as well. Such a powerful image, a pit of disorientation, uh, and to think about different experiences that we have that are like that, and then also the invitation to know that God listens to us and hears us. Thank you so much for for sharing with us and being with us today. I think we're all incredibly grateful for you and for your lives and for leading this time for us and for the work you do. Uh, within our Vox community and within the larger community. I know you wanted to uh, have us close together with uh, a prayer. So in re in recovery meetings, generally every meeting closes with a couple different prayers, but serenity prayer is the one that um, is probably used most. And usually one person will kick it off by saying God, and then the whole group reads the rest of the prayer together. So we will kick it off. God, uh, grant me the serenity. Of things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and 